You're listening to 90.7 WEHC. This is Art Speaks, a production of the William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia. I'm your host, Charlotte Torrance, and I'm here today with our guest, Deborah Prescott. Deborah is a uh, artisan who works in the fiber arts. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Um, can you tell the audience what types of crafts do you make with fiber? I work primarily with wool, and I spin and knit, I weave, and I like to collect wild plants so I can make dyes to dye what I have spun. So you turn raw fiber into finished products. I do. In a, in a traditional, using analog meth- methods. I'm very analog, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and natural materials. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how did you first get started um, working with wool? Well, I, I've been a sewer since I was very young. And so I was very much interested in working with fabric. And that just led me to be interested in weaving. But before I got interested in, uh, or actually learned how to weave, um, I discovered, this is a long time ago now, this is probably about 40 years ago, I discovered that learning how to spin in order to get the yarn to make the fabric that you wove uh, was an option. I went to a little shop in the country, and it was supposed to be carrying natural fiber yarns, and she had a bunch of spinning wheels, and they were not antiques. They were newly manufactured, and I was fascinated with the idea that someone could learn how to do that, that it was still being done. And she said she gave classes, and I didn't even know at the time what you called I didn't even know the term fiber. You know, I, I just asked her, well, where do you get the stuff that you use on these spinning wheels? And she says, I have it here in the shop, and I'm giving a class, and it starts, you know, in a week or so. And so I just signed up immediately because I thought, this will never happen again. I'll never find this opportunity again. So I learned how to spin, and that was it. Um, and once I learned how to spin... I wanted to, well, I taught myself to knit so I could use what I was spinning. I got fascinated with wool. At the time, we lived outside of Chicago, so we, um, I had two little girls. We would take them, and we would go to Wisconsin to sheep shearings, and um, it wasn't too long after that we began to think seriously that we might want to farm and have some sheep of our own, and so we were looking around for a good place to locate, and we landed on southwest Virginia. So this is this craft uh, work is what brought you to the Appalachian region to begin with. Well, basically, we we wanted we knew we wanted to live a different way of life than what we were living in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, but the main pretext was to get some land to get to be able to farm and to get some sheep. Now the first thing we did when we got down here was raise chickens, <laughs> but we did it. We did eventually um, get the sheep. And then we would have them shorn, and then I would turn that into yarn. So you're not only just working with the raw fiber, you're working with from the animal to the shearing, mm-hmm. the preparation, the spinning, mm-hmm. the weaving and knitting, mm-hmm. and the dyeing Yes, from natural materials. Yes. So what does it mean to you to make objects in the same way people have and would be able to make them hundreds of years ago? Well, it means a lot, and I feel like, um, I think if you, it's, it's put me on a very interesting journey 
that by learning how these crafts used to be done, one of the things that I've discovered that I find most interesting is we are usually um, taught that um, the reason we have all these wonderful inventions and do things the way that we do them now is because the way the work was done in the past was tedious and drudgery. And once you start getting into making these things yourself, you begin to find out that, wait a minute, it's not drudgery. It's not tedious. It can be, uh, especially once you get off into weaving, it can be very creative. And knitting is very creative. So um, it causes you to start questioning the whole um, scenario of how our history has unfolded, what, what was really going on. If the work itself is enjoyable, then um, what's the problem? What are we being um, relieved from? So I've, I've learned to question a lot about the past and what I've been told. And I, I do very much enjoy these crafts. And right now there is a, uh, something called Fiber Shed, which is a nationwide movement. And re they're looking again at traditional ways of making cloth because a lot of these older methods were less, had less negative impact on the environment. Not all of them, but a lot of them did. And so they're, they're looking in at people all around the country are starting little projects to figure out if we could go back and try to use some of these older technologies, if we can build regional economies based on some of these things. And it will be better for people and better for the planet. So the, the old ways of doing things, um, there's a lot to learn from them. In addition, it does give people a sense of connection to those who've come before them and a, an appreciation for the way people lived. Not that long ago, really, but yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think there's also a sense to me, I think an empowerment mm -hmm. of being able to recognize what you can make with your own hands. Yes. Like that manufactured product might seem so, like people I don't think realize how capable we might be doing it, capable we might be of doing it ourselves. And also conceptualizing the degree to which everything had to be crafted by hand not, not too, too long ago. Well, there's the instant gratification of buying something. You know, mm -hmm. everybody likes to go to the store and pull something off the rack and buy it. But the sense of competency that you do get, and I think that was that was played out in our whole experience with coming here, living um, more directly from the land, learning these various crafts, taking care of our own animals, that sense of competency that you develop as a result of being able to do all of those things is really quite something. And um, it just gives you a sense of yourself, I think, that's, that's healthy. Mm -hmm. How would you recommend people get started if, they're, if they wanted to learn to make something by hand? Well, there is the maker's movement, so there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of opportunity, um, especially with the Internet these days. Um, personally, I like it if you can learn mm -hmm. these things from an individual, an actual person. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not available to everybody in every community. But the internet has um, all kinds of resources. There are, there are classes on everything from learning how to mend your clothes to um, going through the whole process of, of learning how to spin and knit, make your own sweaters or clothing or whatever. So there's the, the information is out there. Now when I was learning how to do all of these things, I would go to the library and get books out 
Um, and I was I was really surprised. I lived in in a suburb of Chicago, and I could find in my library um, I could find books on raising sheep, and <laughs> on spinning wool, and doing and doing the whole process. So um, the information is available out there. Um, it's just, of course, today it's different from what it was when I was. I took one course in learning to spin, and from there, everything else I learned, I was self-taught. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was so much self-taught. So you've told me before about that course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you just, uh, and spinning, uh, we're, of course, I work now um, with kids at the William King uh, Center, Museum of Art. And it's interesting, spinning can be kind of intimidating when you're first getting started. It's a simple thing, but it's, it does, um, you start with something called a drop spindle. And a lot of people, especially adults, kids seem to, it's like a spinning top. So Mm -hmm. kids kind of relate to it almost as a toy. But it's kind of intimidating to adults. But if you can get past if you just hang in there and you can get past the whole drop spindle thing, then it opens up a whole world for you, and you can pretty much take it from there. Yeah. So to, to interject, um, which I'll re- return to again at the end, we have classes in fiber arts and spinning, weaving, knit, uh, eventually knitting and crocheting, eventually natural dyes um, for children and families uh, under the Little Lambs program. Mm-hmm. And Deborah teaches these classes, and these classes are actually free to take. Mm -hmm. So you should look at the William King Museum of Art website if you're interested in learning to craft by hand. Um, So another question I was wondering while you were speaking earlier, you found resources and classes when you were living in the suburbs of Chicago on on this uh, craft. Mm -hmm. But when you moved to this area where some of these traditions like weaving and spinning have almost continued a little more, but it's obviously less populated, did you feel like there were more resources in fiber arts in Appalachia than there were up in Chicago, or, or maybe less? Well, that was that was a bit of a surprise. Um, I today I have friends who they can remember their grandmothers or spinning, and they did. Um, it was still a thing. This, we're talking maybe the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. Some people were still spinning wool to knit socks. That was something that was very common at one time. But I was really surprised at how difficult it was to find in this immediate area someone who knew about every everybody quilted and a lot of people crochet. But beyond that, um, there wasn't a whole lot of um, knowledge left of the old crafts, especially weaving, which at one time was very common in this area. And I've always been a little curious <clears throat> as to why that that was the case because you can go to you can go to Asheville, you can go to East Tennessee, you can find kind of meccas of of this you know knowledge of how to uh, to do these various fiber crafts. But in this immediate area, there wasn't a whole lot of that. So it it was it was a little difficult um, just to find other people who were doing the sorts of things that I was interested in. And a lot of people wondered why I was even interested in doing it. And it, it was kind of funny, because this was back in the late 90s, and um, things were becoming in vogue again, and especially in the suburban areas, and, and even in the cities. Um, so the people were fascinated with the idea that somebody might spin something, 
or they might weave something or make a quilt or whatever. But around here, um, I was often, the attitude was, well, why would you want to do that? <laughs> Maybe it was almost too recent that it was necessary. Well, that's, I've, I've wondered that. Um, or if it was associated with hard times, then when you had to do things like that, um, I just, I've never quite understood it. Um, I did, I used to do some demonstrating um, at the Fields Penthouse, and it was interesting, the people that would come through and the different reactions that they had. And there were people who had actually worked in mills, and they were not that fascinated with even our, the hand loom that we had at the time. They, so people kind of knew about it, but so oftentimes it was something that they wanted to leave behind them or they had lost their jobs because a lot of the jobs in spinning and weaving went overseas about that time. I don't know, I guess it's maybe the further away you, you are from it, the more interesting it seems. I, I, I don't know, but uh, it was interesting to me. But, but the other thing was that nobody around here had sheep or very few people had sheep. And where we were, no one, no one in our immediate area out in Mendota still had sheep. And they, they would say, well, I remember the old sheep shearer. He lived down the road. But nobody was, was shearing sheep at, at that time. Now you drive, there's, you know, there's sheep every other farm practice. <laughs> yeah. That's really become a big thing. Yeah, since I've lived here um, and started getting involved in the Little Lambs program, um, there's... I feel like it's been more easy than I expected to find people who, mm -hmm. like you, who mm -hmm. know all about spinning and weaving, mm -hmm. people who have sheep. I thought, you know, at some point it'd be nice to get a sheep shearing demonstration up at the museum, mm -hmm. and our director is okay with that, which mm -hmm. is nice. Um, and I've heard had people go, oh, yeah, my neighbor's got some sheep. He could bring a sheep up. Or someone else, so-and-so has sheep, so-and-so has sheep. Like, that would be no issue to find someone with sheep. It's not today, yeah. but it was, it was 20, 25 years ago. It was a big deal. Now, the most stressful thing about sheep shearing is finding a sheep shearer. And um, that can be extremely um, stressful because sometimes you go, you know, once you're, you're the, sheep, the lamb's wool starts getting longer, the sheep's wool starts getting longer, you need to get it cut, and you can't always find somebody to do it. And that's still a problem. So a lot of people will learn to do it themselves. But it's, or what, what has happened in this area is mm -hmm. they have gone to hair sheep mm -hmm. because then you don't need a sheep shear. And that is actually, um, it used to be, we're talking, you know, several hundred, if not a thousand years ago, um, sheep always had two coats. They had a hair coat and they had a wool coat. And it fell out. You didn't have to cut it off. And then it, that was bred out of them. So they became woolly. And then they had to be shorn. Um, but there's, the hair sheep are kind of a throwback to the more primitive breeds of sheep. And they still, um, they will still shed. And you, and you can still spin that hair. But it's very coarse. And you can make rug yarn or something out of it. But so you wouldn't want to wear it? Not next to your skin, no. So mm -hmm. people might not realize that there's a lot of different types of sheep beyond that, too. There are, and sheep used to be, um, like in England, every county practically had their own breed of sheep. Um, and the sheep were bred for certain conditions. So if you had a Romney sheep, it was a sheep that could stand being in marshy areas, uh, which is a problem because sheep get hoof rot. 
Um, there are other breeds of sheep that do better in, in very dry conditions. And today, most of you'll see most of the wool that in catalogs for garments and things is merino. And that, um, that's really uh, being pushed. But they, they need very definite conditions you know, to do well. And usually it has to be pretty dry. I know that merino sheep, a lot of merino comes from Australia, yes. where there's a lot of sheep farming, and New Zealand, yes. where there's yes. a lot of sheep farming. And we use, in Little Lambs, all of our wool roving, which is what we spin into yarn, is Polish merino. That's right. So it is merino. <laughs> <laughs> so it is merino wool, but it's actually coarser mm. than the really soft merino that you get in your nice sweater mm-hmm. from the store. Yes. So it's not because it's not Australian merino. Right. So it's that, that, even that is a different. Well, the variety. conditions, yes, the conditions that the sheep are raised under will uh, oftentimes determine how fine or coarse their wool turns out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you've also talked about using natural dyes. Yes. So how, how did you get started with learning to do natural dyes, I assume, by yourself? I did. I read about it, and I <laughs> wanted to try it. Um, Got a book from the library, and um, I did read about it and tried it out. Um, and at that time, I was still in Chicago, and I had to. Um, you can actually order packets of the dyes from various places. So I I started with some cochineal and some madder root, and uh, those are all um, madder is a root that's traditionally been used uh, in Middle Eastern carpets and things. Um, Matter is actually the dye that was used for the redcoats of the the British soldiers oh, wow. before they began to make a synthetic substitution for that. And um, cochineal is uh, from little bugs that grow on cacti in Mexico. And so I would use those. Then we moved here, and we have a farm, and we have several acres, and it's my husband and I have continually um, we have a conflict over how many of the weeds he should cut down because I want some of them for my dye pots and uh, usually every year I'll cut a big pot cut a lot of goldenrod because you get a really gorgeous yellow from that but then you um, I I even have a use for great ragweed because it makes a great green and from there there's just all different kinds of of uh, jewelweed is another thing that's usually very prolific and you get a great copper color from that but you have to be careful because jewelweed is a natural antidote for poison ivy and they usually grow together so you have to be careful when you wade into jewelweed that you don't get poison ivy but um yeah i just um when i go nuts at the end of the summer because i see all of these things that can be turned into dye so i don't actually do a whole lot of canning of vegetables which you should be doing at the same time because i always want dye pots going <laughs> so instead of canning season it's a dye pot season it's dye pot season yes that's great i think that's so listening to you talk about it it also reminds me like what you've talked about in realizing the joy in like the making of these like supposedly monotonous tasks that people used to have to do that mm-hmm. there's that there's pleasure to be found in it but there's also something in that empowerment and being able to make your own things but also um understanding the natural environment maybe on a more intimate level yes understanding the needs of the sheep yes and connecting to them and also starting to recognize all those weeds growing on your farm and, and the use that they have yeah well i have looked around and thought if people just knew what we could do with all of these things it's not just from a dye standpoint you know it's natural herbal things um we wouldn't have a weed problem <laughs> <laughs> 
everybody'd be out there collecting all this stuff. But yeah, you know, I really um, there, if there's the curiosity, you know, because too that um, I could just go to the store and buy a pot packet of synthetic, you know, dye. I could buy a packet of Kool Aid, and and dye, and that's a great project for with little kids. I mean, you can dye yarn with Kool Aid. But it's the idea of collecting these dyes, and they're going to be different every season depending on the soil, the amount of rain, how much sun they've got. And so you never quite know. Even if you measure out your materials exactly as you did the year before, you will never get the same thing twice. At least I have. That's been my experience. That you just every it, there's just always a little bit of variation. So um, I'm always excited to see what's going to come out of that pot. I put my white yarn in, and then um, when it comes out. And recently, I've been doing my dye projects, and I, they've been rather frustrating um, because they haven't turned out at all like I expected. And I'm using a different type of wool, and so I'm learning that the different breeds of sheep, the wool takes up the dye differently. So that, that's another factor. And the water that you use and the minerals that are in the, in the water, all of that is going to affect what color you get. I know you tried a project um, this summer growing purple basil. I did. <laughs> and, and what color was it supposed to be? Well, I thought it was going to be purple. I thought it was going to be a gorgeous, bright, um, pinkish purple. And uh, what I got as you told me, were several nice shades of green. <laughs> and I found out that the government in India is actually exploring purple basil as a natural dye to use in their commercial dyeing, but they're developing it for green. Well, it turns out that wool takes will take up the dye as green, and there's not very much purple. Now, if I had been dyeing silk, then the silk would have taken up the purple. But I took my yarn out of the dye pot, and it was green, and I didn't have any silk on hand, so I had to pour it down the drain, and here was all this gorgeous purple liquid, but none of it, none of it went into my yarn. So there's so many <laughs> factors. It's kind of fun. It's like a mystery. It is a mystery, and that's why I like it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to know how it's going to turn out, although sometimes mm -hmm. I'm a little more disappointed than I would like to be. But. So once you have your dyed yarn, how do you decide what to start making with it? Um, it sits. <laughs> <laughs> it sits for a while. And um, I have I have developed something I call improvisational knitting. I've been I've been knitting for a long time, so I can pretty much I have what I call my toolbox. I know I have a lot of techniques that I know. So um, I just will oftentimes just take my needles and start, I'll cast on, say, for a sweater, and I'll just start knitting, and I'll make my decisions as I go along. And sometimes I don't know what I'm, a lot of times I don't know if it's going to be a pullover, I don't know if it's going to be a cardigan, I don't know if it's going to be a vest, I don't know what it's going to be. And I just make my decisions as I go along. A lot of people don't like that. They like to have a pattern, and they like to know where they're going and, and what it's going to turn out to be. I actually find that if I start with a pattern and know what it's supposed to be, I very seldom finish the project because it's just not interesting. <laughs> I don't want to know where I'm going. And, uh, and I usually I have enough knowledge of certain techniques that if I get myself into a bind, I know how to get myself out. But, uh, yeah, no, I really... 
I like that aspect of working with crafts and not knowing exactly where it's going to end up. I think that's a good um, thing to share with people because I think people might, if they don't normally knit or weave, might have a misconception about the parameters of it as opposed to something like painting or a different mm -hmm. art form mm -hmm. where you can make up what you're knitting as you go. Oh, you, you can. can. pick up yarn and just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can start it with a blanket, um, a good crochet project. Um, it's normally crochet. I wanted to do a knit one because I prefer knitting to crochet. It's like a, a weather blanket. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can do a certain number of rows each day or maybe just one row of your blanket and say, I'm going to, I have four colors. This is the color for cloudy. This is the color for sunny. This is the color for oh, raining. This yeah. is the color for storming. Or you can do it by temperature maybe. Yeah. And then it's this random blanket that kind of records data. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so some people will do projects, pot holders, towels, or blankets um, using stripes of color to record different levels of data. Yeah. Or scarves, uh -huh. even like just a row of a simple scarf, which would be much more simple to knit mm -hmm. and be like, what mm -hmm. do, what factor do I want to determine the outcome of this project? Right. So that's something I wanted to try. So I, I, guess I think I may try that too. That's yeah. <laughs> like a dalliance into improvisational yes. knitting. And then yeah. my joke was that you could take um, something your doctor wanted you to keep track of and keep track of it with your scarf <laughs> and then wear the scarf to the doctor's <laughs> office. <laughs> <laughs> take the scarf off. You could do that. That's the, which which elevates you to being a, an advanced craft person. Mm. I think at that level. Yeah. <laughs> but even if you're someone who's more scientific and you want to track data, and like that, if that idea appeals to you, you can do that. If you want to be an improvisational knitter, that's also possible. If you're an improvisational oh, artist, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's you know it's been done. Mm -hmm. I think it was was it the Incas that have a. Yeah, they have a writing system yeah. of tying knots yes. in, in, in ancient Incan people, Yes, which was a, a culture, people will say, let's put on my historian hat here, um, oh, the ancient Incans did not have a writing system, mm -hmm. but they had a record system that was based in fiber yes. of tying knots. Well, that's another thing that's extremely interesting, um, and I haven't quite gotten to the bottom of this. If you talk to people that are interested in textiles... They can basically, there's, there's a, a recent book that came out calling The Fabric of Civilization. We can trace almost everything back to the development of textiles and the, and the production of them. And so from a person who's interested in textiles, it's the whole history of the world is told through how people got and made their fibers and their textiles. Whereas conventional history, it's just not there. You don't even see it. For instance, you know, people will say the Industrial Revolution was tied to cotton. But I get into this argument with my husband, too. Um, the cotton was the reason that the Industrial Revolution happened when it did. It wasn't just an incidental, oh, if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. The conditions were such that the only thing that really made it worth financially for people to make this investment in all of this machinery, equipment, and all of that was cotton. And, and had this huge impact. The same, I mean, and you can go back and you can find other fibers. Wool was the foundation of the British Empire. The queen, when she knighted someone, would have them kneel on a bag of wool because she wanted them to understand where their power and wealth was coming from. And, you, and there's just examples of that all throughout history of, uh, and we were talking about merino sheep earlier. Mm -hmm. That was actually the foundation of the Spanish Empire. I think when we think of 
Spain's empire, we think of gold, but it was wool. It was merino sheep. So there's textiles playing through all of our history, which I find really interesting. I mean, it's like the significance you don't really realize. You don't. Until you... You don't. You get to engage with it personally. Mm-hmm. There's historical research that the invention of the cotton gin, like you learn about the invention of the cotton gin when mm-hmm. you're in elementary school or in middle school, mm-hmm. um, and now there's historians are discussing about how the cotton gin itself, like not only connects to the industrial revolution, but mm-hmm. also to slavery. Oh, very much because so. Because slavery was almost financially unsupportable. Right. Before the invention of the cotton gin, which made the production of cotton so much more efficient mm-hmm. that it became like that huge financial reason to continue that um, institution. Well, before the before the cotton gin, you had to pick the seeds from the cotton bowls. You had to pick it up by hand. Mm-hmm. And with a cotton gin, that was no longer necessary. I don't have my the numbers with me, but the the difference between the amount of cotton that was processed and sold between you know before the, gin, the cotton gin and then after the cotton gin is just astronomical. I mean, it was incredible, mm-hmm. and that did make slavery financially viable at that yeah, point. Fi- that's the good way to put it, financially viable, because there was there was more early pushback against the slavery institution, mm-hmm. I think, than is sometimes realized before you get to look into that history. And I haven't myself gotten to learn detailed history, but gotten mm-hmm. to read at some point the papers and talks from other um, historians mm-hmm. um, about this. And it's just, it's just fascinating the role of fiber and of production. Mm-hmm. You could go even into like the role of capital. Oh, you absolutely history. could go into the and, role. And then that <laughs> ties back to your question, why do we still, why do we say that doing things the way we do them now is the best way to do them? Right, exactly. Yes. So on, on that note, we'll have to wrap up. <laughs> but if you would like to keep discussing fiber arts and learn how to craft things by hand yourself from Deborah Prescott. You can go to williamkingmuseum.org and look into our Little Lambs class program. This is a program funded by the Francis R. Doing Foundation and the classes for that reason are free to attend. And we have classes for children um, age six months to 14 years and classes that are for family groups to take together. And we do have plans in the future to expand our fiber program at the museum because it connects to the cultural heritage that we research at the museum and that we preserve. So on a final note, you are listening to WEHC 90.7 and this has been Art Speaks, a production from the William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia. You can tune in to hear us next week uh, at Thursday at 1 p.m.